welcome to In Process, a series of intimate conversations with emerging Stanford artists about setting out on the creative path. Today, we're jamming to music in the hot hills of Los Angeles with Freddie Avis, a musician who has written alongside some of the biggest composers in Hollywood while developing his own eco-conscious music project, Oswain. With industry experience of the writing and recording process at Hans Zimmer's Remote Control Productions, as well as first-hand knowledge of what it's like to release an independent album today, Freddie's story is essential listening for any aspiring musician. For anyone either considering or embarking upon the musical river, listen close. Freddie, welcome to the show. Uh, there's so much I want to dive into today. I'm actually a little nervous. Yeah, I'm, I'm nervous too. <laughs> well, let's just jump right in then. You came to Stanford as an athlete for the baseball team, and you left as an experimental musician. Walk us through what happened. Yeah, so I grew up in Palo Alto, um, five blocks off Stanford campus. And I would say throughout my childhood, music was the foremost hobby um, for me. But then high school came around and I hit a growth spurt and I turned out I could throw a baseball pretty fast. So music starting around sophomore year in high school took sort of a backseat because all of a sudden baseball turned into this this huge opportunity, not only at the collegiate level, but potentially for a professional career. Um, I got drafted out of high school by the Washington Nationals. And I was like, great, this is this is my life. I'm going to play three years at Stanford. Yeah, I'm going to get drafted like many of my teammates did. And I'm going to go play pro ball after college and I'm going to make millions of dollars and I'm going to life's going to be great. Um, but what happened was I actually tore my labrum in my shoulder Oof. right before I got to Stanford and um, I rehabbed and, you know, got surgery and the whole thing took a couple of years, actually, the whole rehab and junior year rolled around and it, it just still wasn't better. So here I was at Stanford retiring from baseball, mm. going through a major identity crisis and sort of grasping for something that was familiar to me and that I could um, something to channel my energy toward after hanging out my uniform. And I think I always entered Stanford with this inferiority complex as an athlete thinking, you know, I got in with the benefit of sports on my side in admissions. And I'd always felt insecure about my intellect on campus and so I pivoted back to music, which is this thing that was comfortable for me, something that I did growing up. And luckily, Stanford has this amazing program at Karma, um, Music Science and Technology. Mm. And so <laughs> I started hanging out at Karma and making wacky electronic music with some really, really cool people, a lot of whom you know. Um, I did. Because a lot of them lived in EBF. Um, but that became sort of my haven after baseball, but the whole thing was, it was pretty difficult. It took me, I mean, it, I never fully healed, I think from the whole baseball mm. debacle. It, it was sort of a, a two year unfolding process where I tried to migrate my persona from this like jock athlete to a really moody experimental electronic artist. 
Um, I would say that that's probably still ongoing. <laughs> I mean, what was that process of, of giving into a, a more creative life like? I mean, what was the identity crisis for you? Because you you started out playing music. That was kind of your your first sort of inclination. It was difficult because I felt, I always felt at Stanford that pursuing a career in entertainment or the arts felt like pursuing a hobby. And it felt like I was never quite growing up and accepting reality that I had to, you know, go get a real job. Um, there's also something, at least internally for me, that I, I'm still, I need to get over, which is that identifying as an athlete is somehow at odds with identifying as an artist. I mean, just typically those things are so disparate on, on a college campus and in society, I would say Um, the Venn diagram overlap typically isn't that big just from like an optics standpoint. So that's, that took a while for me to accept that I could be both this, this athlete and and also experiment with my creative side um and also growing up in palo alto you just don't really hear about people working in music or working in film and that's true you just hear about oh my friend got a consulting job at mckinsey (laughs) early in his senior year or her senior year and they're set or someone got a kick-ass internship at google and has this massive stipend. I mean, you just like, that's the, those are the only work opportunities you hear about. So you just don't have the examples to follow as a student there. So that, that was a challenge just sort of finding my own path to, to what a career in music looks like, which I assume we'll talk about later. Definitely. I'm curious, what do you, what did you learn at Stanford that you actually still use today in your music production? I learned, First of all, I learned how to produce. I learned so many music production techniques at Karma, um, both in classes and also just from the amazing people who are there. Mm. Um, so in terms of like concrete skills, actually, I learned quite a bit about EQing and, and sound design and mic placement. Um, but more broadly, I think what's so great about Stanford's niche electronic community is that there's such an appetite for experimentation um not only at the student level um but also professors like mark applebaum were Mm. were just so integral to my musical upbringing there because you know he's a guy who just is so off the charts talented and imaginative and creative and wacky and awesome (laughs) And it just, it totally shattered my, what I would say, pretty sheltered conception of what music is and can be. Um, so I think that that was my chief asset that I brought with me from Stanford. It's just this, there are no rules. There should never be rules. And anyone who tells you otherwise has been living in a box. Totally. Or is perhaps afraid to step outside of the box and, and take some risks. Totally. As we all are <laughs> either consciously or subconsciously. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that is a process you, you keep coming back to as an artist is getting locked into rules or locked into formulae and having to break them. Even if it's just your own formula, you know? Absolutely. 
And it's not like you always have to be mindful of when you're dogmatically following a certain genre or set of rules. Um, But even just like being able to periodically question and identify like, oh, I'm just I'm kind of lazily following this format like that. That subtle mind trick can be really useful. And that's if I were to characterize like the Stanford musical conscience, I think that's what it would be. Maybe let's uh, go into this question of career and how did you turn your studies into a career in music? It honestly started with a huge level of insecurity because I didn't want to work in music unless I could make money. And I had no interest, Hmm. no interest and no courage, frankly, to be, quote unquote, a starving artist, to, to really work on the music that I wanted to work on and scrape by somehow by working side jobs or or even sacrificing my musical principles to get music heard and placed um, by the right people and and media, I guess. So I I wanted a stable job. I wanted a salary. I wanted to be able to look people in the eye and graduating upon graduating and say, I have a job. I have a salary. Here's where I'm going to work. This is legit. Um, because as an artist, I felt insecure compared to all my friends who are working at these huge tech companies and consulting firms. So that's how it sort of started. I was lucky to, to get um, a job at Hans Zimmer studio in Santa Monica, as you know, called remote control productions. Um, it's a, it's a cool little facility because it's, it's a, it's not only Hans Zimmer studio, but it's sort of a campus of studios that um, he rents studio space to other composers and um, all those composers sort of came up through Hans. So those people include Ramin Javadi who did Game of Thrones um, or Otley Orvarsson or Benjamin Walfish who has worked with Hans on Blade Runner and um, he did the It series. Anyway, um, I worked for Jimmy Levine who is a TV composer. He did Glee. He did American Horror Story back in the day. Um, Mm. But when I was there, he did, we worked on Bloodline, Major Crimes, Instinct, um, Netflix series called Chambers that very few people saw. Um, What else? Uh, A show called Star on Fox. It's sort of the sibling show to Empire, for those of you who've seen Empire. It was great because it was like grad school. You just you learn how to write music really quickly and really intuitively because we had to crank out like, you know, six minutes of music every day. So you don't have time to really to really brood over your themes and your structure. You just have to write off the cuff and and you just learn to spit out these cues for these shows, um, which became a really useful skill um, down the road for film scoring. I will say that place has a mixed reputation. It's a really intense environment. Um, long hours, uh, some, some personalities. I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) You really just have to figure it out on your own. You're thrown into the lion's den. It's not like a typical job where there's an HR department and they train you and they, they orient you to the, environment of the workplace it's it's kind of an improvised work environment Mm. where everyone's just kind of making music 
And you have to come in and learn these elaborate computer systems with all these samples that they're loading for these massive sequences to write to write these cues. Um, and no one really holds your hand. So you, you really have to you have to come in with knowledge of of how to use digital audio workstations, DAWs, like Logic or Ableton or Cubase. Um, and you just got to be ready. Um, so it I was there for two years. It was a great learning experience. I was very ready to leave when I left and get my life back and and start working on projects that um, I had a little more jurisdiction over. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you're working there, you're working in a support role. So for instance, I probably should have said this at the onset, but I was assisting Jimmy Levine with his shows. So I was effectively a ghostwriter for, um, for his musical scores. Um, so one of the reasons I left is to have a little more agency over the projects I work on. So we can, we can talk a little bit about that later. Absolutely. There's so many paths we could go down and just talking about remote control, um, which I think would actually be really valuable. Um, I mean, it sounds like a thrilling environment to be in, though intimidating for sure. But I'm sure you must have learned so much in your first year there. What do you? What would you say are the the things that you learned from that first year remote control that you've taken with you today? I mean, certainly I can speak to your ability to turn around a music cue within a night. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing um, that you can do that. Um, what else? What else would you say has been the legacy of that place? <sighs> Man, a lot, so much of it, and I, I hate to say this, is is just learning software. I mean, I think I'm a pretty capable composer, mm-hmm. but there's there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people out there who are magnitudes more talented than I am musically. Mm-hmm. Um, but so many people don't get the chance to enter the film scoring world, or or don't become effective commercial film scoring composers um, because they don't know the software and they don't know how to harness it to turn around music in a timely fashion and write to certain audiences. I I feel like so much of what Mm -hmm. I draw on at remote is, is not artistic at all. It's not creative in nature. It's, it's about workflow and it's about savviness with these amazing technological tools that we have at our disposal to for instance replicate an entire symphony orchestra with samples pretty convincingly such that your average viewer or listener won't be able to tell the difference between a live orchestra and a and a simulated one and that's actually um correct me if i'm wrong that's what hans zimmer was uh controversial for was it not I would say he's more so seen as a pioneer in that space. He he developed this digital mock-up workflow where you can write a bunch of cues, get them approved before the studio, before expending the time and and money to go record a live orchestra. The controversial elements of that place, I think, lie more, more so in how assistant employees are treated mm. and how... Um, Q sheet royalties are distributed 
to assistant writers and ghost writers, which I think is just a well-known fact about the, um, the film composer world and about remote control specifically. I'm digressing a little bit, but, um, no, but I, I think that's, um, I think that's a really good point to bring up because it speaks to a more general trend within the creative industries of the problem of wages of crediting and of this culture of pay your dues before you get what you've earned. Um, and that's interesting to hear, hear you speak about that because I, I mean, it's certainly the case within the film world itself, the film industry, um, starting out in the mailroom of CAA or WMA or whatever agency you're at, if you're at an agency. But there's something fundamentally different about creative work, I think. I remember describing when I was first working at Remote and I was running a ton of music and I I wasn't getting credit for it because I was still paying my dues and learning the craft. And I remember telling my my dad, I was like, this is unfair. This is, um, I'm getting used. I, I don't want to put up with this. And he was like, well, Freddie, what it sounds like you're describing to me is capitalism. Yeah, he's like, you know, executives carry out the orders and and their subordinates do the work. But I think there's something markedly different about about creative work because you're not you're not just carrying out orders. Like, what, I think when assistant composers write a cue for a TV show, they're actually taking a lot of creative liberty and they're mm. constructing the piece of music from the ground up. It's not simply just a an execution of a preordained idea. Um, so there's, there's a whole debate to be had there about fairness and credit that is due to collaborators, but, but look, it's an incredibly effective industrial composing model because one composer can have four assistant writers cranking out music for five or six different shows running at the same time. So that's, that's five or six times your revenue for the year. So it's, it's an incredibly, um, effective business model. And also say you're giving a portion of the royalties to your assistant writers and you're taking the majority. I mean, that's still a lot of music circulating that you're getting, I don't know, say 80% royalties on. Um, so even if you do give a little bit, that's still, that's still great news for the head composer. And what I'd like to point out to the listeners that, that you are sort of the antithesis of me because you <laughs> have insisted on having total creative control over your projects. Yeah. And you, and you intentionally did not take the path that I took, which is the rise through the ranks, pay your dues, go to LA path. Um, when I start, when we started working together and I was scoring your short films um, while I was working at remote, working with you was such an antidote to everything else I was doing there. I mean, everyone who's listening to this should watch your film Snail Man because I think it's, <laughs> I think it's amazing. Freddie's the super fan. I am a super, super Snail Man fan. <laughs> but um, it was jarring to watch, to watch and work on your work and your projects mm. because it reminded me of that sort of Stanford mindset that I was alluding to er- earlier, this this appetite for experimentation and courage to be truly original. Um, I was working on shows that are network TV and they follow a certain format, mostly procedural crime dramas. Um, And then here comes in 
here comes Will Hamilton with Snail Man. And I was like, God, this is so awesome. I get to write weird, really weird music <laughs> for this incredibly wacky and surreal short film. Anyway, I just I just wanted to put those two things in in dialogue with each other because they they really sort of crystallized like how how different the commercial film scoring world is and was from like our shared sort of Stanford creative upbringing. On the flip side, I feel like I have been so impressed working with you um, about the speed of your turnaround, your creative turnaround, the fact that you can put together a really interesting, professional, polished cue within 24 to 48 hours and it will it first first time is almost always the only only time i need to hear it the speed of your turnaround as well as um the the polish of your productions and i think that's credit to your boot camp experience at remote control that you have the ability just i think the technical knowledge and practice to create very shiny songs and tracks. Um, and it's something that I was a little envious of, even though we're in completely different mediums. Um, yeah, just of your, your technical know-how. Uh, and I think that's, a, that is a major advantage of going down the industry route, at least for a little bit, is that it, it forces you into this crucible of professional production of where, the clients you're working with have certain standards. The audience who's going to listen or watch your stuff, um, having professional quality uh, work is a major advantage. Yeah, I mean, we've had conversations about polish and what what it really means. <laughs> I don't know if I have much to say on it. It's just it's something I had to get used to in LA where everything needs to be like really pristine. Whereas a lot of the music I like to listen to sounds a little sloppy and a little raw and a little rugged. Um, but, but yeah, if you learn to, I guess Mm -hmm. if you learn what polished is and sounds like, then you can, you can always strip down from there. (laughs) Theoretically. I I know it is a bit of a poison chalice. Well said. You know, once you're, yeah, it can be hard to authentically actually strip back and get back to the roots, which is always, I mean, it's such a trope, isn't it, of, you know, the successful musicians who are, like, going to go and record <laughs> yeah. in their, the garage. It to, yeah. <laughs> and we're going to record on tape. Yeah, to, like, <laughs> to weirdly simulate rawness instead of the actual piece of work being raw in nature. But uh, speaking of tropes, I actually want to talk about one thing that I forgot to talk about with remote um i think the defining creative um i don't want to say struggle because that's melodramatic but uh dilemma i guess uh that i had while i was at remote was this mm-hmm. notion of film music as a genre which i highly disagree with i mean i here i was coming from stanford with pretty minimal orchestration experience and you know i don't read music i learn everything from ear i i've never really had to notate a score before for any of my work um 
so I came in with this like weird electronic background um, into this world where, and largely because of Hans Zimmer, there is there are some very specific notions of what film music is and isn't. For instance, we're very used to the orchestra as being synonymous with film music, but there's no reason why film music in, inherently involves an orchestra. It could really be anything. Um, and that's why I say it is and is not and shouldn't be a genre because that just becomes everything becomes a regurgitation of old styles. I mean, for instance, I write for a a music library called extreme music, which is also housed at remote control. And a lot of the music we write for this library. um, And by library, I mean music that's in a database on a website um, that shows can, they can license individual tracks instead of hiring a composer for that show. So it's, it's just another model for shows to get music and license music for, um, for their shows and another way for composers like me to make money because we're not only the composer, the sole composer for projects that we work on, but we're also, we have this body of work that's being licensed out there in whatever array of TV shows. So it's a good way to sort of diversify your portfolio as an artist. But anyway, um, the music we write is largely based on briefs that are based on pre-established genres in film music. So for instance, we get one that's like, spy music in the style of James Bond. So we're just, we're rewriting (laughs) that music so it can continue to get used in film and TV and then continue to be interpreted by audiences as the only kind of music that sounds like spy music. So it's, it's an inherently regressive model for which types of music allegedly suit certain genres um so that's a problem in film music i mean very few people are able to really break through and do something new i would say trent Reznor and atticus ross did that with social network i mean they just brought something Mm. completely new to the table and burst the door open and won the oscar over all these storied film composers who've been doing it for decades they came in and hijacked it and they did a very effective lateral move into film music. The the irony of that legacy is that everything now sounds like the social network. Right. And that <laughs> yeah, that becomes the sound of dystopian sci-fi. Not it's not sci-fi. Dystopian tech or sci-fi themed. Anything brooding. Yeah. Yeah. Low Moog synthesizers. Which I'm certainly guilty of replicating. And of course you can't be truly original all the time. I mean nothing's everything's derivative. But um I think there's a there's a general laziness in film scoring the majority of the time because when you're on a deadline and you need to write five music, five minutes of music for a show that is being mixed on the stage the next day, you just got to do what works and you got to meet the deadline. So that obviously encourages you to draw on styles that have worked in the past. Like not every scoring opportunity can be this magnificent um opportunity for experimentation and originality yeah that is um a strangely real world practical example of postmodernism industrialized into the structure of music making well maybe let's get away from the generic uh and move towards the idiosyncratic because you don't just make 
music for TV and film, you also have your own personal projects. What is Arswain? Arswain is an electronic solo project that I started developing in or while I was at Stanford. Um, it's it's sort of a hybrid style of of what I would like to think are more experimental electronic elements, but also it's grounded in my rock and songwriting background. I grew up playing in rock bands and uh, writing pop music, if you can believe it. Um, <laughs> and there's there's still a, a songwriting core to that work. I, I'm not interested in making music, as you know, that is totally alienating to people. Um, I want to invite listeners in and uh, from a variety of listening mm-hmm. backgrounds. But yeah, this is this is a project that I started in college. I played some live shows at Stanford, which were really fun. Those were some of my fondest memories of of being on campus there. But I put that project on hold when I graduated and entered the film scoring world because I didn't believe it was legit and I didn't believe it was worth pursuing because it felt like this, honestly, it felt like a childish pursuit. It was like, that's something I did when I was in college and when I was growing up. And now it's time to get serious mm-hmm. and write for legitimate projects like all these TV shows. Um, but when I left remote, um, or actually even before that, I read a book called The Great Derangement, which you well know. And um, this book was about, among other things, it was about climate change and more specifically about um, why art and literature and film and music and all other media essentially have failed to reckon with climate change on a humanistic level. Like why is climate change so conspicuously missing from a lot of what we read and listen to and watch on screen? Um, Really the only popular example are apocalypse movies, which are great in their own right, but they don't, I don't think a lot of times they're not really honest discussions about what we're up against in terms of the climate crisis um so that book really mm-hmm. frankly just kind of changed my life and re-energized me to write music for the sake of music that was about something i cared deeply about um or about something i, I cared deeply for so mm. i wrote this album called partitioning which is a term i took from the great derangement about how we've created this artificial barrier between civilization and nature as if they're two separate entities when in fact like it's all our habitat um that we need to be concerned about so that was sort of the guiding principle and i wrote this album because i finally had something to write about <laughs> i wasn't just making music to be enjoyed i think enjoyment of art and music is a very it's, it's just a very elementary way to engage with with a body of work Um, and I wasn't interested in writing something for someone's casual enjoyment. I wanted to write something that had stakes, at least in my mind. Um, so I wrote that album last year, released it earlier this winter, and (laughs) there is some excellent video content for that album (laughs) that Will Hamilton here has (laughs) so expertly directed and, and been the driving creative force behind so not not to plug that content too hard, but um, <laughs> that made 
the writing process even more fruitful because I knew that there was a multimedia element waiting on the other side um, because I had found Mm -hmm. you, this amazing collaborator who was enthusiastic about this little album that I had written that I didn't think would be heard by anyone, frankly. So, Well, yeah, I I would hardly characterize it as little. It's a pretty epic album um and certainly anyone who's listening should check out partitioning uh it's on spotify Bandcamp. you can buy it there uh and support the Osman project uh i really think it's it's fantastic music thank you will for the um, for the plug oh absolutely <laughs> man um i i, I mean i, I love i love it because it's also it's great music it's fun to listen to it's emotional i could go on um but what I most want to talk about is how you address climate change, the crisis that we're in, in a in an oblique way. You're not, or, or at least in an artistic way, because I, I I feel like part of the issue with art that addresses um, the climate crisis is either it is usually that it's just on the nose. And it feels like totally preaching. Yeah, I I didn't want to write a hopeful album because I don't think we have much cause for hope at all. I think optimism right now, in terms of emotionally reckoning with what we're up against, I think that's just a dishonest approach. Um, I think partitioning hmm. partitioning turned into a, a an album about grieving and about not about offering solutions. I don't have any solutions to climate change in this album. I'm not interested in that. I was simply writing about my own deep despair about, about the state of the world and, and my participation in it, but also recognizing that my participation is microscopic because there's, you know, 7 billion people on this planet. So the, the hubris for me to think that I am in any way, a change maker in this space. Um, it's all the above. And I, it's also at the center of the album is a critique of our obsession with, frankly, with, with humanism and how much of what we write about and sing about and, and paint or, or what have you is about the human experience, which is great but when the totality of our societal creative output is about what I, a lot of which is about like the petty features of human civilized existence, we're missing the bigger picture and we're missing the natural elements right around us and right in our backyard that for centuries were the dominating narratives of a lot of fiction and storytelling. I mean, you look back to a lot of ancient stories and and they're about floods and monsoons and these mystical natural calamities that no one could quite explain at the time. And there was a lot of, a lot of storytelling about those elements because they were so unknown to us. And we've lost, I think a lot of that curiosity and, um, and fear, frankly, of these huge global natural forces that are beyond really our understanding 
And to think that we completely understand them scientifically or intuitively, I think is misguided. And, and that's what the role of art is right now for me is um, to use human expression as a, as a forum to figure out what, mm. you know, what carbon is <laughs> like what this, this invisible force that's, that's wreaking havoc on societies across the globe. Like that's a ghost story. It's this invisible element mm. that we can't see or touch um, that we can really only intuitively understand in scientific terms. Um, but there isn't a visceral experience on a day-to-day basis. Um, I think that's such a, an interesting um, phenomenon of this whole thing. Anyway, should we talk, should we talk about music again? I, I mean, I think there's still, there's one thing that I think links this, um, this tension to the bulk of our conversation, which is, this question of how do you how do we make art or how do you make art and specifically music that balances a critique of our current system and our current behaviors as a society with compassion for people who are listening the limitations of humans um and the ways in which we've been conditioned in our behavior hmm That's a good question. Um, I don't know if I have a good answer to that. I think if we're talking about partitioning specifically, um, I think one thing that I definitely thought about when writing the lyrics was how this issue isn't, it's not a matter of individual responsibility. I think anyone... It's sort of like criticizing your neighbor for not recycling. It's like, sure, that's great, but that's not really the problem here. Um, I, <laughs> I'm stumped. I don't, I don't really know if I have any valuable input on this mm. other than we're, we're all sort of at the whim mm. of forces that are beyond our control, at least for the moment. And we're all just kind of doing our best and sure. Some people are vegan and others buy recycled clothing and that's wonderful. Um, but to, to focus on those minutia would, um, I think it would just be missing the broader picture. I don't know if that answers your question at all, but, um, it's a very difficult, I would be, surprised and perhaps disappointed if you had a a pithy response to it because it is one of the biggest questions of our time probably of our generation i used to think that music should stand on its own and it should it's just sound waves the sound waves should be able to move people without context um and i'd be curious to hear your opinion on this is the extent to which a piece of art can be without audience or context and whether it's a meaningful pursuit to develop such a work when Mm. everything we make is tied to some sort of cultural affiliation. Um, Cause that was a breakthrough for me. It was an, 
that allowed me to actually write about something and feel okay writing about something. Whereas at Stanford, I felt like if you're, if you are indeed an academic musician or artist, then you should be able to write something that is so sophisticated and strong on its own that it doesn't need explanation and it doesn't need to be placed in current events or in our cultural moment in order to matter. Mm. I feel more comfortable leaning into zeitgeist and con and what's happening in the world as a, as inspiration for whatever I write for, for the Arswain project. I think ultimately when you're taking on a large project, it has to exist first within your heart. It's it's how you connect, I guess, to a trend or how you connect to a, a social issue um, that, that is present. And for you, it was reading The Great Derangement and that triggering something that was within you anyway, some sort of concern or discomfort with the situation and activating it. Um, but I would argue that it was... It, it, it was personal for you all along, um, but maybe you just didn't have the language to express it or something hadn't catalyzed within your mind. You've just, you've reminded me something that I meant um, to include earlier, which is that when I read The Great Derangement, the, the change for me was so seismic that I almost considered leaving music altogether. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, what's the point? You know, I, I could write music for... TV for these TV shows that sure they're entertaining, but like they'll pass and they'll be replaced by something that follows a similar formula. And meanwhile, the world is burning and I have the Stanford education. Why am I not putting it to use? I should go do something that more directly contributes to solving the climate crisis than sitting at a keyboard and pressing buttons all day. Um, <laughs> and so like I, I applied to grassroots organizations um, and different environmental initiatives, I applied for jobs there when I was at remote control um, because I was so... I had nearly lost my belief entirely in the relevance of music or the humanities as a whole. Um, mm. But it was only going through that process that I could then realize, no, wait, the humanities actually have everything to do with what's going on in the world. Um, you know, we talk so often about the climate crisis in terms of science and politics and economics, but if none of us really emotionally accept or make sense of what's going on, then there really isn't a foundation for us to, to move forward. Um, there mm -hmm. needs to be a fundamental change in public conscience, widespread public conscience in order for for any substantive change to happen. So the storytelling is really the best tool we have for that. And that sounds cliche, but that was the, really the first time in my career that I believed in what I was doing musically beyond just the fact that it was fun and entertaining. It was the first time I viscerally felt its relevance and importance. That was a big moment for me. It took, it took, an extreme level of doubt about what I was doing to figure out that it was actually the only thing that I could do <laughs> to feel like I was doing something. Mm. 
I think that's so valuable for people to hear. Um, but it is certainly for artists, that's a massive question of, you know, whether it's environment, um, civil rights, human rights across the board, why pick up the pen or pick up the keyboard when you could just go and get get your boots on the ground? Um, but I and I think I think also there are there are other compromises one can make where you know you can write music and actually as as you do still do a lot of the NGO work, um, a lot of the the civil rights organi- organization work uh, on the side. Um, Which is something you can relate to as well, given your work with um, what's the uh, the German equivalent, yeah. the ACLU. It's uh, Liberties, um, which is a, a human rights organization over in Berlin uh, and in Budapest. Um, we deal with like uh, data rights, data security, human migration, and checking authoritarian governments, which is an unfortunate trend within our time how so <laughs> yeah please tell me uh what are these authoritarian governments you speak of <laughs> um i want to sh- i want to shift gears a bit um and-, and talk about this process of getting getting the work out getting the work out to an audience um so i guess the question is how did you get partitioning out there it's an ongoing process I learned a lot that I could have done done better at the onset. Um, <laughs> remember when I was visiting you in Berlin uh, pre-COVID, of course, when traveling was acceptable. <laughs> also, it's so refreshing that it took us this long to even mention COVID because I feel like it's such a lazy opening topic of conversation with totally. everyone nowadays. <laughs> and we just didn't even acknowledge it. It's great. <laughs> um, but it was a week before I released partitioning and... Um, you and I were walking around the city at night and you turned to me and you said, so do you have a publicity plan? Have you hired a publicist? (laughs) And I was like, no. And then I frantically called one the next day and like set up an appointment. And, and then publicist of course said, yeah, it would have been helpful to talk all this through like two months ago. So I could have rolled out a publicity plan and like pitched it to outlets before the release. And now no one's going to pick it up. So I hate to say it, but so much of rolling out an album has to do with um, investments of of money, frankly, in people and platforms that can help you share it. Because there's just there's just like a microscopic chance that each of us individually can promote our own work on the scale that we want to promote it. We need the help of others, and that requires either money or extremely good relationships and connections in high places. Mm. Um, So I think it's really important to think about your budget, what kind of distribution and what, how many eyes you can reasonably expect to see on this content and who that audience is. It's different for everyone. It took me a while to find the right publicist because not all publicists, you know, even though they're all equally capable in their craft, of pitching artists, not all of them have connections in the particular genre that your work exists in. So you need to find a publicist that um, matches your priorities, who understands your work and knows which platforms 
uh, would be most interested in your work. And that's true for any, anyone who's helping with your, um, with your exposure. It could be a publicist. It could be a manager. It could be an agent. Um, you just got to find the right fit. And there's, there's no formula to making sure your music gets out there. It's this, it's this improvised dance you do with the resources and connections you have. And you just got to, you got to do some mental math and figure out, you know, who, who are the best people to lean on for, for helping me get this project out there. I mean, frankly, Will, I think both of us would be disingenuous if we said that the only reason you and I collaborated together was because we loved each other's craft. That is 90% of it. But I think the other 10% for both of us is that we see potential in one another to, to gain exposure. And it's a sort of gamble we make on each other, hoping that one of us will give the other a level of exposure that we didn't have before. So that I think our partnership is actually a great example of a very healthy blend of, of genuine creative mutual admiration. And then also some like strategic capitalization on each other's um, connections and audience. And I mean, do you think that's a fair assessment? Completely. I think it's also something that um, perhaps because of our capitalized culture that has a almost a dirty taint to bring up when it really doesn't need to be. It's kind of a, it's just a mutual symbiotic uh, cooperation. Uh, and frankly, the most effective one, I think, as emerging artists, um, you know, it's the the people that you're working with <clears throat> who are going to bring each other up, mm-hmm. um, who you're going to give everyone else opportunities that you would otherwise not come across unless you come from a very wealthy background or a very, you know, you know like a creative family. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just so much, such a crucial part of starting out as an artist and, and and frankly continuing to work uh deeper into your career is building and maintaining really healthy collaborations totally and coalitions i would say yeah coalitions of creatives i remember being at stanford this is part of the reason we're doing this podcast too from what i can remember about our initial conversation but i remember being at stanford at karma and there was a class where music artists and executives who were very accomplished would come in and talk about their careers. And what was always missing from their accounts of their career is actually how they broke out in the first place. That's often left so opaque to people because what artists and executives will have you believe is that every artist who breaks through did it because their work is just inherently better than others. When in fact... Totally. That that's those are only like unicorn cases. I would say the majority, from what I've learned in LA, the majority of what breaks an artist or a piece of work is this sort of improvised scramble of gathering the right people at the right time and getting the work Mm -hmm. in front of the right eyes at the right time. And then miraculously, spontaneously, that work will break through at that moment. And that was a really hard pill for me to swallow because coming from Stanford, you want to believe that. And as is the case, allegedly the case with many 
more corporate jobs is that you apply for the job, you do the interviews, you get the, you get the job based on your, your ability and your values. And then you rise through the ranks and there's comparatively speaking, a formula through which you rise in your career in a more traditional Mm -hmm. work environment. For those of you who want to go to LA or pursue a career in media and entertainment, like leave that assumption at the door because sure, your ability will get you very far and that's what you need to rely on. But what you should be prepared for, and well, I think I'd be interested to hear if you agree with me, is um, what you should be prepared for is this, as I said before, this kind of scrambled dance that you have to do mm-hmm. to to rise and make a name for yourself in a constantly changing industry that and this is another key point, is built on normative opinions. It's not built on work that is objectively better than others. It's the value of a product and entertainment is built on like what people think is cool in that moment compared to other things in that moment. (laughs) And that's like, (laughs) that's a, that's a moving target, a constantly moving target. So to expect that there's a meritocratic system or formula that leads to certain outcomes um for capable students like stanford graduates um you know that's just not true and it's it's a hard thing to accept a hundred percent being an artist is such an opportunistic lifestyle where you really have to become very sensitized to the gifts that can come your way every so often whether that's an offer to collaborate, an invitation to go to a party where there are some cool executives or other artists that you want to chat with and pitch your project um, and knowing how to capitalize upon those and also when to say no um, is a very fine skill and fine balance. Uh, and that's just something that I think comes with time and experience of doing it wrong <laughs> or not doing it at all, maybe. Um, and, and just having, yeah, you know, sometimes it's a bitter pill that you do have to go and schmooze. You do have to do the marketing outreach or whatever it is. But yeah, no, you, you're absolutely right. There are so many, particularly if you're going to LA, I would say that um, strategy and people skills, career strategy, are two of the the most important things. Unless you have insane talent, yeah. Unless you're just a freak, yeah. I don't I, I don't want to uh, judge anyone's innate talent uh, who's listening, but you know it's very rare that someone is that good that everyone will just bow down before them and say, "Take your pick." Right, like overwhelmingly good. Let's just pick up on marketing perhaps again uh i want to return to this question of getting an agent or getting a publicist how did you get one publicist was mostly word of mouth i I know a publicist in la who i initially reached out to um it didn't work out but we reached an understanding and he actually recommended a few other people and it was through those recommendations that i found someone so again just following and connecting the dots based on the the connections you have. Um, as far as an agent goes, I'm still 
still sorting that one out. Um, I've been lucky to be introduced to a few different agents um, at several agencies. Uh, nothing's official yet because it's this tricky situation where I'm a 26 year old composer who, you know, I've worked on some pretty prominent projects, but um, my name isn't on the marquee yet because I wasn't the lead composer. And what they look for is, uh, what agents look for is um, credits on shows because that's that's the currency they use to sell you and pitch you to other projects. Um, of course, I could get my name on the marquee if I had an agent who could get me those projects, but they're not going to invest their time in me until I have some credits of my own. So again, a very unpredictable dance you have to do to somehow catalyze that process, you know, get that one credit that gets an agent to, to finally invest resources in you. So yeah, just very frankly, that's, that's kind of where I am right now. Um, it takes a while sometimes to get the right management to work for you, um, at the rate that you need and want to, to get the kind of projects you, you think you deserve to work on. There's a lot of waiting as an artist there is a lot of waiting <laughs> yeah it's i mean you're working on a feature film right now you know you know how to wait better than anyone yeah <laughs> yeah to endure the uh the revisions and uh the thing actually coming about um yeah and i think that's an uncanny experience isn't it um of certainly coming from this productivity mindset of stanford and probably the schooling that got you to Stanford, there's a lot of time spent when you're just not doing anything. You're not creating or you're burnt out from creating and you have to take a break. But it feels so wrong sometimes <laughs> or it feels like, you know, you're the lazy, spoiled person who's decided to do art to indulge this side of you Um and it feels childish. Yeah. I was telling that to my sister yesterday, who's a pediatrician <laughs> in New York. I was like, I'm so glad you decided to do something legitimate so that I could like, it, at least like my parents can enjoy that. At least one of our, one of their children is doing something real and the other one's just playing for a living. <laughs> Noodling around on the Moog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can't, you can't creatively output every single day. It's impossible. And knowing when to take a break is really important. And knowing when, you know, today's not the day to write a piece of music. It's the day to uh, do some networking, frankly. And like, maybe you hit up, in my case, you hit up some directors whose work you really admire and you ask them to get coffee and you see, you have to kiss a bunch of frogs before you meet a prince. Is that the expression? I've never heard that one myself. Yeah, it's... Might be over the pond. I think I, I think I butchered it, but anyway, <laughs> hopefully the message got through. Um, but yeah, knowing how to how to um, spend your time and com- compartmentalize the different tasks of being a freelance artist becomes mm-hmm. pretty important, which you very well know. Yeah, and also knowing how to take stuff in. I mean, I definitely want to ask you how you find inspiration within the world. Mm. What are you feeding on creatively? (sighs) Reading really helps. And I know that helps for you too. That's something you and I 
I've talked about a lot. Mm. Usually musical ideas come from non-musical things for me. Or my favorite is when I hear a noise made by like a construction site, like walking by my house or I hear random noises in everyday life that somehow spark creative ideas. Those are really cool. I love it when that happens. Mm. But I would say reading has a lot to do with sort of the idea generating behind the music for me. What would you say for you or your inputs? So I think reading is massive. Listening to music for me also. Listening to albums all the way through and just carving out an hour or two to lie on the couch and and listen with headphones. Um, I think in general, more durational activities that are, where I'm just doing one thing with a lot of, co- lot of concentration. Hmm. Um, even something like, I don't know, ironing shirts. <laughs> Involved in that is motion too, which I think is really important. Playing catch with someone just to occupy the very like the basic level of your mind i think it's 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 kind of like that process of meditation mm-hmm. forgetting that you have somewhere to go and just really sinking into the present moment um even if you know as you say it could be playing catch with someone it doesn't have to be sitting cross-legged and doing meditation but that um getting rid of anxiety and getting rid of um the checklist of stuff that you have to get done in the day that's when the creative stuff can really start to flow i think absolutely i also want to touch on social media um because it's such a prevalent thing for modern artists uh that we have to deal with what's your approach to social media in the context of oswain man you've really hit my achilles heel i'm i'm constantly learning and my publicist is actually helping me with some social media work, um, just how to develop a social media persona, an aesthetic persona, um, a cohesive set of imagery that gives you an identity online. Um, I don't know if I, I know the answer to this. I mean, so much of the artists that I love are really sparse with their social media. Um, partly because they can afford to be because they they already have a substantial following. I find it really off-putting most of the time when I feel like I'm being bombarded with content from someone who's really trying to get your attention and show you their stuff and be really enthusiastic online. And I just, it it seems so um, forced to me. Some people do it really naturally and really well. And I envy those people. Mm. Um, Charlie and Aiden Geronimus do it really well. Uh, they're two Stanford grads from my year and they have a, they're a, a hip hop duo down in LA. And I, I think they, they market themselves online in a way that's very, um, consistent with who they are as people and the broader mission behind their music. Um, mm. I'm also not sure if quantity, the relationship between quantity and quality is an ongoing mystery to me. Like, do you post fewer times and actually have something to say and show? Or do you just post a photo of yourself in black and white leaning against a wall and write some (laughs) stupid caption like, 
live free or die or something. I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's so, that stuff is so silly to me. And like, no one thinks you're cool. Yeah. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? What are, you're pretty um sparse with your social media usage. Yeah, I really struggle with it myself too. I, I mean, it just doesn't come naturally to post a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't always feel that I have stuff that's valuable uh, to put out, certainly not every day. Um, and within the confines of this very limited format um, of like a square image with a caption or whatever. But I do, I am, I must say, extremely envious of those who can do it, whether it's forced or natural. Um, I, I think at the very least it's seen as, it's perceived to be a boon, certainly by the marketing people and maybe also by audiences. If you're giving this constant stream of content to your audience and yeah i don't know it's it's difficult and some people are also just so productive their creative output is incredible uh and they can actually genuinely post stuff every day which catches my eye and blows me away yeah like for the music people who are listening to this like jacob collier is a great example of that sort of musical genius who's just cranking out ideas every day. So he actually has something to show you every time he posts something. It becomes a method of displaying your work. It's not just a, an artificial Trojan horse into getting people to care about your work that you will eventually share with them. Totally. Yeah. It becomes your personal gallery. And that's the Instagram ideal that they certainly trade on. Honestly, I should probably be posting more because like when you're trying to grow your account, you just need to get people engaged and like the way that I post right now might be effective for like maybe five years from now when I have an actual like substantial following, hopefully maybe. Mm. Um, and that just doesn't really work right now. So yeah, work in progress. I think the listeners are probably better at it than we are, frankly. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. A few years down the line of, having actually we just missed that wave of yeah being really native to instagram dude honestly do you know where i most went wrong in my social media approach i didn't have an instagram in college so i don't have all like the thousands of people i could have maybe had follow my account i missed out on that because i started my instagram like a year and a half ago when i wanted to launch this arswain thing college becomes and high school now for a bunch of like Gen Zers becomes um, like very fertile ground to develop your brand, which is also kind of sad because it makes <laughs> college relationships transactional. Yeah. Um, but maybe maybe it doesn't really feel that way. I wouldn't know because I didn't have an Instagram during college. Um, well, maybe let's finish up this interview with looking to the future. Where do you see yourself? going in the next year um aside from the uh situation the whole world is in yeah um yeah tough times for content right now for sure um helps to be in the independent space like you are um studios are looking for independently produced content so that they don't have to produce it themselves but um luckily i've had some work 
in the past six months during this whole ordeal. Um, luckily, I'll keep writing library music, which is always in demand. But in terms of new projects, new new shows, new films, I I couldn't tell you. It's it's tough out there. I feel for the filmmakers themselves. Um, and I just don't know what's, what's coming in 2021. Mm. I am working on a new EP for R. Swain, which, uh, luckily I've been talking to a manager about and hopefully getting it released on a label. So that would be a, that'd be a great development for 2021 in terms of getting that Mm -hmm. music more exposure. Um, but live shows of course are nowhere to be seen. It was a bummer because I was going to play a few shows in LA and in San Francisco this next <sighs> year. And those of course didn't and won't happen. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know what to say. I'm just going to keep on keeping on. And, um, there are opportunities out there and people will find a way to make content that needs music. I mean, everyone's stuck indoors now. There's, there's never been a bigger appetite for stuff you can watch in your living room, but I I just don't know what that looks like. Well, Freddie, thank you so much for coming on in process um, and sharing a gold mine. (laughs) Um, It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. Thanks for bringing me on board for this and for coming up with this idea in the first place. I have to say that I have the luxury of having these conversations with you frequently. (laughs) Yeah, we're always in process. (laughs) I always enjoy them. And I'm so glad that we could do this um, with with an audience in mind. Um, It it brought to light other things that I hadn't thought about before. So thank you for for hosting this conversation. Really appreciate it. And if you're ready for some of Freddie's musical magic, you can head over to arswainofficial.com or indeed his Arswain SoundCloud page. If you're after his composing talents, check out his website, freddieavismusic.com. And of course, there's always Instagram, either at Arswain, or if you'd like a smattering of his tunes, our very own Instagram at InProcess. All those links can be found in the episode description. In Process is produced independently by myself, Will Hamilton, with music from the mind you just listened to. That's it for today, folks. Keep on paddling, and see you next time.